From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. My name is Richard Serrett, and you have found us. The Conspiracy Show. Blowing out of the great white north like a polar vortex here on Blowtorch Station AM 740 and now on nearly 30 U.S. affiliates. And speaking of which, a big hearty welcome to WBBA FM 97.5 in Quincy, Illinois. Thanks for making The Conspiracy Show part of your schedule. And uh, to the good people of Quincy, I look forward to hearing from you very soon. All right, meanwhile, the United States and the EU continue to play this unconscionable game of chicken with Russia. And more and more, we're beginning to hear comparisons between this increasingly tense situation in Ukraine and Crimea and the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of Russian President Vladimir Putin, but this guy is being backed into a corner. And for the life of me, I don't understand why anyone would want to poke a stick at a cornered bear. What is happening in Ukraine is nothing short of a coup d'etat. And the people who have seized power there are at the very least far-right extremists, and at the worst, the very worst, anti-Semitic neo-Nazis. And this group of thugs, not Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, they're the ones that are responsible, from from what I can tell, for most of the, the bloodshed, setting Ukrainian riot police on fire and so forth. And again, this group of thugs, which includes right sector leader Dmitro Yarosh, they were the ones responsible for the sniper fire which killed not only Ukrainian, uh, the peaceful protesters in Kiev, but Ukrainian police officers as well. And and not surprisingly, you're not hearing of uh, any of this from the mainstream media, uh, which are going along in, in lockstep. And meanwhile, the uh, the ethnic Russian majority in Crimea, Crimea uh, will, will vote to succeed from uh, Ukraine in a few days, as is their right. Uh, and then we'll see what happens. If there is violence... And Russia forces uh, intervene, this could escalate if the United States does something foolish. And this is my great fear. We should all be very afraid. And because it's so important, because the situation could go south very quickly, I'm going to dedicate the next hour talking about it, largely because I think the mainstream media throughout North America is getting this story exactly backwards. They're getting it all wrong. Last week... We heard from historian Webster Tarpley on the issue, and tonight, another astute observer of geopolitics. Stephen Lenban is a syndicated columnist, an author, broadcaster. He contributes to moneynewsnow.com, and he can be heard frequently on the Progressive Radio Network. He's also the editor of a forthcoming book about the current situation in Ukraine and Crimea. Uh, He's actually working on it as we speak and as the situation unfolds. Stephen Lenman, how are you, my friend? Oh, Richard, it's good to be on with you. Delighted to be on. Yes, uh, unfortunately, under rather uh, serious circumstances, this is pretty dire. Before we get into the details and the particulars, let me just get your initial uh, sense of how dire the situation is. How close to midnight are we in terms of, let's say, World War III? Well, I think without question, Richard, this is the most potentially serious post-World War II global geopolitical flashpoint, that's the way to put it, the most serious. The second most serious was the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, and I remember that very well. But there's a big difference between now and then, Richard. Jack Kennedy was president. We didn't know it at the time. I didn't know it at the time. I was much, much younger. I was worried like everybody else. And a reunion, a later reunion, many years later, 
of the people involved in that who were still living admitted that accidentally they had a close call. They didn't have a confrontation, but they had a close call, and we came closer to a nuclear war than anybody ever realized. Thirteen months later, he was gone. But after that incident, he said, and I can just about quote him, and I've, I've, I've quoted him in, a, in, in an article a couple of times. He said, I never had the slightest intention of confronting Cuba or Russia belligerently. Well, that was Jack Kennedy. In office, Richard, he turned from coal warrior to peacemaker, and that was the main reason he was assassinated by the CIA, no question. Now we have Obama. We have Washington infested with neocons. We have his administration infested with neocons. We should all be scared. The other difference between, well, there are a lot of differences, but I think that the Cuban Missile Crisis is very apt because the other thing that Kennedy had going on or the world had going on was, unbeknownst to us, were these back channels between Kennedy and his people that were loyal to him rather than the hawks that were surrounding Kennedy. And you had these back channels with Khrushchev. Uh, and, and the people that were loyal to him because Khrushchev also had his warmongers and hawks uh, to contend with. So in this back channel, there was also this, I think, a mutual respect between Kennedy and Khrushchev. Neither of them wanted it to happen, war, that is. We don't have that with Putin and Obama. Putin doesn't trust Obama. There is no rapport there whatsoever. Yeah, I agree with you. I think Khrushchev and Kennedy absolutely did not want war, but they were both worried that maybe something would happen on the other side, so they had to be ready to respond right away. Well, they cut a deal, and the deal ended things. The crisis didn't last that long. I mean, we've got the thing that's going on in Ukraine, Richard. It's been going on since last November, and it's not over. The fact that these putschists, these neo-Nazi fascists, these extremists, I mean, I mean, these societal misfits have literally taken over Ukraine. I mean, this thing just may be cranking up, so it certainly isn't over. The worst may be yet to come, and everybody should pay very close attention to this. It's a very serious situation. You're describing this far-right uh, neo-Nazi element. You have the right sector. You have uh, Svoboda. You have the Fatherland Party. And we were talking last week with um, Webster Tarpley about this. I want to run through some of the key players, uh, Turchinov and Yatsenyuk and some of these others. But before we do that, let's dial it back to November and give this some perspective. In November, we had... The communist president uh, at the time, Yanukovych, basically turning his back. This is, of course, the Western media's perspective, their official line. He turned his back on further trade deals with the EU, and that set in motion, and it wanted closer ties with Russia. This supposedly, ostensibly set in motion a series of protests which became increasingly violent in Kiev. So if you could pick it up from there and, and tell me, your perspective on how this got started and how we got to where we are today. Yeah, that really is how it got started, Richard. I wouldn't call Yanukovych a communist uh, president. He was very, very much allied with the oligarchs of Ukraine, and uh, they were very comfortable with him because they made a lot of money. They did well. Uh, they switched over to the other side when they saw he would be a goner because the only thing they concerned, the Ukrainian uh, oligarchs, the only thing they want to do is uh, make money, uh, uh, incre- increase their considerable fortunes, and uh, they don't care who's running the country as long as business is good, and they to do things the way they want to do it. Well, the nominal reason for all of this business was uh, Yanukovych was negotiating with the EU a possible EU membership. 
I didn't know this until just recently, within the last week or two, but there was a clause in the EU agreement that especially riled him, that absolutely got him to, 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 to simply walk away from the deal. And it was, it was less the economic provisions of the deal and more a provision that said, align with the EU will give NATO a right to basically uh, operate in Ukrainian territory, which means, you know, pulling Ukraine into NATO, setting up NATO slash U.S. bases on Russia's borders. Uh, Yanukovych wanted nothing to do with that. I think he would have been comfortable to go along with the economic side, but that one provision in the deal that I knew nothing about, all the articles I wrote I knew nothing about until within the last couple of weeks, that was in there. And I can't say for sure, Richard, but that could have been the deal breaker. He broke away. He, he wanted nothing to do with it. Uh, the EU and Washington would have been very comfortable working with him as long as he surrendered Ukrainian sovereignty to Western interests. They don't care who runs Ukraine. They don't care who runs any other country. The only thing they want is a, is a subservient pro-Western government and they can get along very fine with them, whether they're Democrats, whether they're despots, whether they're anything in between. When Yanukovych turned east instead of west, that set off the firestorm. Did he have any choice, though, Stephen? Would uh, uh, would Putin, for example, how could Putin stand for uh, what eventually might have led to, to uh, NATO nuclear missiles on Ukrainian soil, as they are now in Poland, as uh, I believe they are in Georgia, you have you have this situation where since since the uh, the fall of the the, the, the Iron Curtain, uh, the the boundaries that once separated the two superpowers used to be you know right down the middle of Berlin, and it's being pushed progressively eastwards towards the Russians. I mean, this is a provocation. I mean, I'm no fan of Putin, but this is a clear provocation. Can you blame Putin for reacting this way? Oh, not at all. It absolutely is a provocation. And I absolutely believe Ukraine, she is a 1,400-kilometer border with Russia. Now, can you imagine nuclear-armed, long-range missiles, U.S. ones, EU ones, aimed at Russia's heartland, sitting in Ukraine, virtually on the border? Can you imagine Putin tolerating that? Can you imagine any responsible leader tolerating that? He absolutely wouldn't. I'm sure Yanukovych knew it. He couldn't go along with the deal. He would have had to confront Putin if he did, and he thought he could just back off the deal, say, well, we'll postpone it for a later time. Whether he had any idea he would ignite a firestorm, I'm not sure. He was damned if he did and damned if he didn't. I mean, he literally was in a bind. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> he was either taking on the West or taking on Putin. His, 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 his better alliance... Well, the alliance he really wanted, Richard, was one that really gave him the best of both worlds, to have good relations with the East and the West. But that's not the way Washington plays the game. And Washington pulls the key EU countries along with it, and the others go along whether they want to or not. I don't know whether whether <laughs> some of the standard Scandinavian countries or Spain or uh, Luxembourg uh, some of the smaller ones really want to go along with this conflict, but certainly Germany does, and Britain, and France, and Italy. They're the big ones. Spain, probably. They're the ones that are really involved. So we've got this mess on their hands, in our hands, and just how this thing will play out, I don't know. 
but we really we really have a, a terrible situation on our hands, Richard, and are very concerned about so what's going on going forward. I'll be involved in a forthcoming book on this, and there'll be plenty in it. And I'm wondering that some of what may be in it, maybe the most the most important parts, are events that have not yet happened. So I haven't had a chance, or other my other contributors, to write about it. But anything major will be in that book, and I'm guessing publishing will be roughly around mid-year. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Steve Lenman, syndicated columnist, a broadcaster, and uh, has uh, will be uh, editing a forthcoming book. Uh, what's the publisher, Stephen? Uh, the publisher is Clarity Press, Richard, and the title is Flashpoint in Ukraine, U.S. Drive for Hegemony, Risks World War Three. All right. Uh, we we talked about you know the, the uh, one of the main reasons that the uprising started, and that was uh, that uh, the the then president of the Ukraine turned his back on a on a deal with the EU. My understanding further to that, Stephen, was that the United States and Europe said to to Ukraine, "You must choose now. It's either us or them," meaning Russia. And Putin said. Why are you putting Ukraine in this situation? Don't you understand how divisive this is? There's a, there's a very sizable Russian-speaking minority in the Ukraine that wants closer ties with Russia. Why are you trying to split this country in two? And Putin then offered that he would work with Germany because he has a good relationship with Angela Merkel. Uh, he would work with Germany and try to come up with some sort of a bailout package uh, to help Ukraine's insolvent banks. Uh, but the Americans and the uh, and its NATO allies said, no, Ukraine must choose now. It's like they were pushing Ukraine to the precipice. Oh, indeed. So the, the big issue, Richard, is not Ukraine so much. Well, Ukraine is very important. It's the most important former Russian republic by far. So of all of those republics, Ukraine is the grand prize. But the much bigger issue is Russia itself. The ultimate aim for America is to get rid of the, the smaller independent countries. You see the ones they've gone after, Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Libya, Syria. Iran is the next one on the list. Hezbollah in Lebanon. The big one, Venezuela, and we know what's going on there, more violence. Uh, instigated by Washington, uh, working with people on the ground, uh, the fascist element in Venezuela. You get rid of these countries that are small compared to the big ones. And the final two frontiers are Russia and China. Washington wants them both marginalized, wants them both weakened, wants them both isolated, wants them both controlled. And the problem with those two countries is they're not weaklings. Venezuela doesn't have a military to go up against Washington, nor does Iran, nor does Syria, nor do any other countries that America targeted. But China sure does. Russia sure does. Both are nuclear armed. American can strike targets, pinpoint accuracy in their countries. They, in turn, can do the same thing in America. They can wipe out Washington, New York, Chicago. It's absolute insanity, Richard, to think that any responsible leader in America or anywhere else would risk this type of confrontation. But they were around in the Kennedy years, and I wrote about them. Curtis LeMay, for one, a general, I believe his name was Lemonson, maybe pronouncing it wrong. He wanted another Bay of Pigs. K 
Kennedy told him to go to hell in less than diplomatic language. Curtis LeMay, he wanted to nuke Russia back to the Stone Age before they had a chance to do it to us. He said, we have an advantage of them. Let's take advantage of it. You know, so maybe we'll lose Philadelphia and Boston and, and, uh, <laughs> and Pittsburgh, maybe Washington. Well, you know, it's a small price to pay. We can turn Russia to, to rubble. Isn't it worth it? Kennedy was absolutely furious. It was a Security Council meeting that they were together in, and, and these ideas came up. And Kennedy was so angry, he literally stormed out of the meeting in mid-section. Mid-session. Can you imagine a president doing that today, Richard? Impossible. Well, it sounds like uh, that President Obama is surrounded by uh, a lot of these same types of, uh, of hawks who believe that Russia is vulnerable and now is the time to strike. I don't know what – I believe they, they absolutely want to marginalize and weaken Russia. Now, whether they believe it's vulnerable now, I don't know. I would guess their game plan is, you know, death by a thousand cuts. You chip away at the former republics. You get control of all of them. You get control slowly of all the Warsaw Pact countries. So uh, 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 Russia is isolated. It's, uh, it's together with China. You try to figure out a way to pit the two of them against each other confrontationally. I think the way it's going – they're getting more aligned closely because they, they're not stupid. They know what's going on. They know Washington's dirty game. The best chance they have to confront Washington is to come together in a geopolitical, economic alliance, military if necessary, and confront the beast in Washington. That would be a very formidable adversary, Richard. And I have to believe that in their discussions, this is something that is right at the top of their agenda Plus, some of the other countries of the region, Iran might join them. I mean, you put enough of these countries together, it will be, it will certainly will be no pushover for Washington. And Washington, like any bully, Richard, likes to go up against a pushover. Bullies don't like to take on people who can fight back. And it doesn't matter whether they're schoolyard ones or whether they're hegemons like America. I think America would think very, very strongly before confronting China or Russia militarily. I think they may be crazies in Washington, but I don't think they're crazy enough to want to see their city nuked and they and their families annihilated. I think this will be the stopper for them. All right, let's uh, let's uh, talk about some of the key players in all this. And uh, of course, once again, we have the mainstream media in, uh, going along with the official line that that former President Viktor Yanukovych uh, was corrupt and that he's responsible for for the you know slaughtering of these uh, innocent protesters in the Ukraine. Uh, however. Uh, some pretty nefarious people we saw up on stage, up on the podium in Kiev, uh, some, you know, uh, groups like, uh, Svoboda, uh, John, Senator John McCain has been uh, pictured with Svoboda. They are, there's no other way to describe them. I mean, they, they are a neo-Nazi group, but they're not even the worst. I mean, th- there's the right sector, and they think that Svoboda is too liberal, if you can believe that. Tell, tell me about, uh, Svob- let's, let's talk about right sector's leader, uh, uh Dimitro Yarosh. Well, number one, Richard, I agree, I agree with the Webster Topley. There is no question that this was a blatant, brazen coup d'etat. And I could put it this way. It was the most brazen coup d'etat pulled off 
since Mussolini's 1922 March on Rome. Uh, Mussolini's was bloodless. This one was not bloodless. You know, maybe a hundred or so people killed, maybe uh, eight, nine hundred, a thousand people injured. But it was a brazen coup d'etat. And for John Kerry to stand up and call these people Democrats, <laughs> need I comment about him? I mean, it's just absolutely brazen and disgusting. And Obama saying much the same thing. I mean, I just, I mean, these people are really societal misfits are the best way to describe them. Uh, this guy, Yarosh, the right sector neo-Nazi commander, <laughs> I quoted him saying, uh, he's, he's the, he devoted his life, he's devoting his life to, to, to killing Russians and Jews. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that, that's roughly his quote. He's devoting his life to killing Russians and Jews. I mean, you would think that would be a, a stopper for Israel. I haven't heard Israel say very much about this. Uh, I, I have some contact with a couple of writers at, at Haaretz, and one of them who I respect very much wrote a terrible article on Ukraine, literally got the story backwards, and I pointed out to him that these people are Jew-haters. They're anti-Semites. That's the topic you ought to write about. He hasn't done it so far. I don't know if he will. He has to know it, and if he doesn't write about it, it's a very irresponsible act. He needs to denounce them. But these are the kind of people who've infested and taken over Ukraine. Everybody should denounce them. I mean, they're really a bunch of lunatics, they're dangerous. Who knows what they'll do? And, and my understanding is that uh, the, the, the Maidan demonstrators, uh, the, they're uh, exerting a great deal of pressure to include Yarosh in the new government. Oh, yeah. His superior. Oh, I believe his superior is, is Andre Parube. These names, I must say, drive me crazy. I like Smith and Jones a lot better. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh, Parubi, the uh, uh, National uh, Security Council, chairman of the Security Council. Chairman of the, of the National Defense and Security Council, that's yeah. right. He's a new top commander, and Yarosh is his second in command. I, I mean, these people come from the far right, the neo-Nazis, and, and they have key positions in this government. They are wielding an enormous amount of power. So they have a lot to say about what's going on. And, and the way that Yarrow speaks, if, uh, if others who may be a little less extreme than they are decide on policies that aren't as extreme as they want, they're never going to go along with them. They're going to, they'll probably try to oust them and put their own people in power. So we really see... We really have a, a neo-Nazi coup going on, and these are the people that are going to run Ukraine. I don't think there's any doubt about it. It's just a question of how will the West respond? How will Obama respond? Will they really go along with these people? Are they going to support them? We'll see. Well, again, uh, uh, you know, there were um, obviously many innocent people that were killed. There were also Ukrainian uh, riot police that were set on fire. Who was responsible for that? Well... The beans were spilled. The Estonian prime minister, a man named Payet, if I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, don't have his name in front of me. It might be Armas Payet. I think that's pretty close. He had a conversation with uh, European uh, policy uh, head, Catherine Ashton. Uh, he was in Estonia. Uh, they didn't know it at the time, but the conversation was monitored. It was hacked. It's on tape. It was played. And he admitted on tape that it wasn't Yanukovych who was responsible for the sniper attacks, doing all the killing and all the injuring 
It were these right-wing fascists enlisting their own elements to do it. They were stationed on rooftops. They were in windows and nearby buildings. They were in other close locations. And they were the ones, except for one day back in November, when the, when the Kiev government police were very violent, and Yanukovych called them down on that. And after that, they stopped. And I couldn't understand, Richard, why they were so subdued in the face of all this violence, because you know what Toronto police would do. I know what Chicago police would do, what would happen in every American city. If anything close to this broke out, the police would confront it full force. If they couldn't handle it, the National Guard would come in. If they couldn't handle it, the Marines would come in, and they would shoot these people down in the streets. They wouldn't tolerate it for a minute, and the headlines would cheerlead everything they did. What did the Kiev police do? They stood back, they had their shields, but they took the brunt of this violence and they didn't respond forcefully. They let these people occupy government buildings. If so- Yanukovych is guilty of anything, it's perhaps showing uh, too much restraint. Listen, we'll take another time out. Stephen Lenman is with us, broadcaster, uh, a syndicated columnist, and uh, the editor of an upcoming book on U- Ukraine. We'll tell you more about that. When the Conspiracy Show continues, my name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Stephen Lenman, syndicated columnist and uh, broadcaster. Uh, and when, when can we hear your show on the Progressive Radio News uh, uh, Network? Do this. I would tell listeners to do this. On the one hand, they can access my blog. The easiest way, which is the way I do it, simply Google my last name, L-E-N-D-M-A-N. If you Google Lenman, it'll come up right on the top of the Google list, and you go to my blog with all my articles, my books, my radio program. The uh, schedule is being changed right now, uh, Richard, so I don't want to tell listeners when to, when to tune in. It even has the wrong uh, dates on my blog site, but I'm waiting to change it until the schedule gets finalized. PRN is going through a number of changes. They're adding programs. They're removing others. So I'm waiting to see what happens. They're changing some of the personnel, and I'm waiting for them to shake that out. And when it does... I'll, I'll update my current uh, schedule, which is the Progressive Radio News Hour. It'll be on my blog site, so uh, readers of the site can go there and they can see exactly when I'm on. And all my programs are on live, they're archived, so people can listen anytime they want. All right, uh, let's talk about the new interim president, uh, Alexander Turchinov. Uh, and uh, I understand he's with this, is it the Fatherland Party, which is kind of an ominous name. Where have we heard about the Fatherland before? <laughs> <laughs> it, indeed, it is very, very, <laughs> very, very ominous to say the least. Uh, Turchinek, I think, is, is pretty much on, on the far right. Uh, he is uh, Igor Turchinek. He's a he's a member of the Svoboda Party, and he's he's. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm looking at the wrong guy. No, I'm talking about Alexander Turchinov, the new interim president. He was um, he used to be parliamentary speaker, and he's very much sort of the right hand man of Yulia Tomashenko, the former prime minister. Yes, yes, and and uh, and Timoshenko uh, may run for president in the May elections, and there's a pretty good chance that she would be elected. She's a mega thief. 
She was in prison for good reason. She's popular. I don't think she's overwhelmingly popular, but I think she's reasonably popular. And I'm not certain who is popular in, 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 in this amalgam of right-wing fascists. I mean, they're all right-wing. They're all fascists to some extent. I think some of them are more fascist, some of them are less, but they're really a very, very dangerous bunch. So whether it's the president, whether it's the prime minister, Yatsenyuk, Yatsenyuk. Again, Richard, these names drive me buggy. Uh, I mean, for a Russian named Putin, Medvedev, I mean, they're simple compared to these guys. <laughs> I've got to get used to these guys. But but it is, it's a terrible group. Uh, they admitted, uh, Yatsenyuk admitted that between now and May, they will be initiating terrible policies. So maybe new people will be elected to the top posts. But the ones who hold some of the key positions now, whatever they hold in the subsequent government, after the May 25th election, they will wield great power. I say unequivocally that extremist fascists are running this government now. They will post May 25th. Heaven only knows what these guys and Timoshenko may pull, allied with Washington, allied with the EU. And that's why I worry that we possibly could be heading into a global conflict. These crazies might just want to take on Russia. They might even try. And if they take one step too far, Putin will never tolerate it. Just imagine if they start killing Russian officials. If they start pulling in Russia what they did in Chechnya, I mean, getting into Moscow, I don't mean an occasional this or that. I mean something real serious, one thing after another, going after Russian officials. Putin won't tolerate that. I could see Putin getting involved, defending Russia's interests, even going into Ukraine to do it. There's an arrest warrant out. Uh, for uh, Yarosh, because he's al- he's allied with uh, with Russia's public enemy number one. Uh, forget his last name, Omar. Forget his last name, but he's a guy who's pulled off a number of terrorist attacks. Uh, nobody's certain whether he's alive or dead, but Russia has an Interpol arrest warrant out for his address arrest. Uh, whether Interpol would turn him in, even if they found him, is something else. Probably not if the West says no. But he's a dangerous guy if he's alive, and Yarosh is inciting him to commit more terrorist attacks against Russia. You mentioned Yatsenyuk, which is interesting because he came up in, in another famously intercepted phone call, and that was with U.S. envoy Victoria Nuland, um, where she was speaking with the U.S. ambassador in Kiev. And they were talking about, you know, uh, it was really evident that, you know, by the sounds of the the, uh, the conversation, they were they were plotting to see who should be the new leader, and it was uh, Victoria Nuland, who's also sort of Under Secretary of State, uh, who was who mentioned Yatsenyuk as her choice. She says this is the guy uh, that should be the new leader, and he is of course the interim prime minister now, uh, which is very interesting. So yeah, uh, yet another intercepted phone call, which seems to indicate. Um, you know, U.S. meddling in this in this uh, coup d'état. Oh, absolutely. I, th- I think the idea in Washington is they would like to get technocrats running the country. Yatsenyuk is a te- is a technocrat. He's a former. He's an economist. He knows something about the economy. He's been involved in the political situation. Uh, there are others uh, that are involved. 
who are simply, you know, they're rogue elements, but they, they know a lot about causing a ruckus and creating a lot of violence, but they don't know much about affairs of state. So they could be in the government, but Washington's ideal government would be to have technocrats in charge and have these other people in less responsible positions. Whether they're going to be able to pull it off in Washington, I don't know, because you have these crazies who absolutely think we pull this thing off, and if Washington thinks we're going to back off and give the, the top jobs to somebody else, they have another thought coming. This is exactly what's happening in Libya right now. Uh, Washington thought they had it made. They got rid of Gaddafi. They, they put... Uh, they put uh, puppets in charge of what's going on, and, and Libya is a cauldron of violence. You've got people in various parts of the country running things in their own areas, including the oil industry. <laughs> Ukraine could end up exactly the same way. There you go. Stephen, we'll take another time out. We'll come back, and I want to talk about Crimea, because that could be the powder keg uh, that leads us into who knows how far it could go. Perish the thought. Back with more of my conversation with a syndicated columnist, broadcaster, author Stephen Lenman here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Stephen Lenman as we continue to talk about the situation in Ukraine and uh, Crimea. Uh, let's let's talk about uh, the latest in Crimea. Uh, as I understand it, uh, Russia, of course, they have their big naval fleet there in Sevastopol, uh, have told the Ukrainians to surrender the the, uh, the, uh, the naval port, and I believe that they, that was done without any shots being fired. Uh, the United States is accusing Russia of invading Crimea, but as I understand it, Stephen, and you. Did Disabuse me of this. Uh, my understanding is that Russia has had about 16,000 troops in Crimea as part of a Ukraine-Russian agreement since the 90s. There was no need for Russia to invade. They, they have the people there. Well, I would say categorically there is no evidence whatever that Russia invaded Crimea. They have a 1997 friendship treaty with Ukraine. At the time, it ran to 2017. I wrote about this a couple of times. In 2010, it was, it was extended to 2042. It had an option on it to extend it to 2047. Uh, it allows Russia to have up to 25,000 military forces there related to its Black Sea fleet. It's, it's uh, based mostly in Sevastopol. It's in a few other locations. The only Russian forces that are there are the ones related to the Black Sea fleet. I believe that Washington knows it, EU countries know it, Ukrainian uh, so-called government forces know it, and yet they claim otherwise. And you know what the major media have been saying. Russia invaded Crimea over and over and over again. There's been no invasion. There, there are people, defense forces, Crimean defense forces, that, that, that are very active. They have no insignia. They're dressed in military-style uniforms. They're Crimeans, Richard. They have nothing to do with Russia. They may have Russian equipment because they've gotten it long before this crisis ever broke out. They're the ones involved. They're the ones confronting the Ukrainian forces in Crimea, they don't want, they don't want to uh, go to war with them. They don't want violence with them. They don't want them subverting what they are doing themselves, which they will vote on next Sunday. There'll be a referendum. They'll decide if they want to declare independence and or whether they want to join Russia. And based on what I know, uh, 60% of the population is Russian speaking, 25% uh, Ukrainian, 
12% tighter, I can't imagine that a strong majority will not vote for joining Russia. And Russia's upper and lower house, the State Duma, lower house, the upper house, the Federation Council, the speakers of both bodies have said that they support what the Crimeans want and they will go along with it. I haven't heard a definitive statement from Putin. What he has said is Russia will not unilaterally annex Crimea, but it respects the opinion of what the Crimean people want, and that's close to a direct quote. Uh, and the West is saying that they will not recognize any such vote, that this is illegal. But is it really? I mean, uh, uh, Crimea is a, is, a, is a semi-autonomous region that was given to the Ukrainians basically as a gift back in 1954 by Khrushchev. It really has no, has no uh, history as being part of the Ukraine, does it? Uh, Khrushchev uh, gave Crimea. <laughs> it must have been in a weak moment, uh, Richard. He gave Crimea to, uh, to uh, Ukraine when Ukraine was still a Russian republic. Uh, apparently, he had no idea that years later, Ukraine would become an independent country. But, but key, as far as what Crimeans will vote on next Sunday, it absolutely is legal. Kosovo split from Serbia the same way. The World Court in 2010 ruled. I wrote about the ruling. I quoted it verbatim. It said more or less what the, what the Kosovars did was absolutely legal. They had every right to declare independence and establish an independent country. In September this year, Scottish people will vote on whether they want to stay aligned with Britain or whether they want to declare an independent country. Have you heard anybody in Britain say, you can't do this, it's illegal? They're pushing like crazy to urge them not to do it, but nobody is saying that doing it is illegal. What Crimea will do is no different from what Kosovo did and what Scotland intends to do. The the portrayal of of Vladimir Putin, and again, let me you know put my bias on the table. I think he's a bit of a thug. However, he may be what Russia needs at this point. You can't go from seventy years of communism to a complete you know open uh, society. There's kind of be a, there has to be a transition, and perhaps they need this strong man. But having said that, he's being portrayed as you know another Hitler. Well, I'd like you to weigh in on that. Well, Hugo Chavez was portrayed as another Hitler, too. I just can't imagine a guy more democratic than Hugo Chavez, and oh, do we miss him. Uh, Nicolas Maduro, also very, very democratic. I've heard the Hitler word thrown around uh, with respect to him. Uh, I would certainly, uh, Putin is no Hitler. He, he's, I, I would say he's far more a Democrat than Obama or anybody in America is in a position of power. But I would say this about Putin, and, and I've written about this a number of times. He absolutely respects the sovereignty of other countries. He will not attack another country. He will not evade another country. He respects rule of law principles. He really does. He respects international laws. He respects peace. He goes all out to support peace. He is fundamentally against U.S. imperial rampaging. He has said it. He gave a very famous speech in Munich in 2007 with a fairly high U.S. official sitting in the audience. He made him squirm. He wanted to get up and walk out because he pilloried America's imperial policy, and he basically said some of the things that I just did. With Putin respects other nations, he goes all out for peace, and Washington's policy is exactly the opposite. This is why I respect him. I don't like his economic policies. Too neoliberal, too much harm done to the Russian people, but geopolitically, he's a guy we really need right now.
he sort of cast himself, in my eyes anyway, as uh, you know the one country or the one person who's going to stand up against you know the, the one world government or the new world order, which, whatever you want to call it. And, and I think he drew a line in the sand um, during the, the, the so-called uh, Arab Spring uh, when the United States and, and, and its NATO allies were basically running rampant through the Middle East and, and instituting uh, regime changes and creating client states. And then when it came to Syria, Russia and China said, that's enough. There'll be no more of this. Yeah, indeed. I think China is the same thing. China is very subdued, and I think the China issue is it has such strong economic ties to the West, to America. It owns over a trillion dollars in U.S. Uh, bonds and notes, but also such tremendous business it does with America and also with uh, other Western countries. So China is very concerned about that, but it knows what's going on. It needs to protect its interests. I've been wondering where do these countries draw a red line? I think they may have partly done it in Syria, but for Russia, I really believe that, that the big red line is Ukraine, and I think Putin will let uh, Obama and the West go so far, but no further, and if they cross that line, I think that's when a conflict could erupt. I think Putin knows that if he lets Russia, if he lets America and the European countries get away with everything they want, then he will be sitting there isolated, much weaker than now. Would you rather confront this beast now, or would you rather confront them in a weaker state? And if I was sitting there, a fly on his wall, I would believe he decided he's going to do something now if they cross his red line, whatever specifically it may be, and he will not let it go further. And I certainly hope he feels that way. So what should, what should we look for uh, uh, that might signal, you know, which way this is going to go, towards uh, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, violent confrontation or a peaceful resolution? Is it all about the, the, the vote in Crimea and how the, 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 uh, those not, uh, not voting for closer ties with Russia, how they react to that vote if Crimea votes to go with Russia? That's the big kahuna, I must say, Richard. Uh, Crimea is important for Russia because of its Black Sea fleet. Sevastopol is really an independent city, but Sevastopol will be voting in this uh, uh, referendum as well. But Russia has its fleet there. It's its only warm water port. It will not give that up. It's got it until 2047. My God, all these decades ahead. It won't give it up. Uh, the big stuff is coming real, real fast. The a referendum vote next Sunday, we'll see uh, Russia's parliament has already said it respects this. It will go along with it. If Crimeans want to become Russians, they will support it. I want to hear a definitive statement from Putin. But if his parliament overwhelmingly wants this, I don't know how Putin can say no. So there's a, an overwhelming chance, I believe, that Crimea will become a part of the Russian Federation and then we have to watch and see what happens. Will Washington's talk be bluster, or will it do something? I don't know. Stephen, uh, thank you for this. Thank you. Stephen Lenman. Uh, I really like his, his perspective uh, on, on um, not only Ukraine and, and uh, what's going on in Crimea, and that is, uh, this is making for some really tense moments, believe me. Uh, you know, if you're not uh, following it, you should be, and if you're not concerned, you should be. Uh, is this the new Cuban Missile Crisis? Boy, you know, you talk to people who lived uh, through that 50 years ago, 52 years ago, and 
there were times when when people thought this is it we are about uh we are about to enter into world war 3 or some sort of nuclear conflagration i met a uh, i was uh, shooting an episode of the conspiracy show tv program in california and i met a um, a, a psychologist it was actually for an episode we did on Marilyn Monroe uh, and he was talking about uh, that whole era, you know, Marilyn Monroe and Jack Kennedy and the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he told me, uh, he and his wife at the time were, uh, were driving through L.A. and they were listening to events unfold on the radio regarding the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he said, at one point, he said, I reached across the front seat to my wife, I held her hand, and we said goodbye to each other. That's how tense it was. Now, people forget. And... God for Finn, we're heading into that situation now because we don't have a Jack Kennedy in the White House and we don't have Khrushchev. Now, no fan of Khrushchev. However, people need to understand, Kennedy and Khrushchev had kind of a respect for each other, a, a grudging respect, and they were working back channels. Kennedy insisted, you know, they had the the, uh, the red phone in the Oval Office and Khrushchev had the equivalent in the Kremlin so that they could talk to each other. Both Khrushchev and Kennedy were surrounded by hawks who wanted to go to war. Luckily, cooler heads prevailed. And I wonder, is that wisdom, does that wisdom exist in the White House? I don't know. I wish to God I knew. Just a programming note. Next week on the program, Dr. Timothy Ball, climatologist. Yes, he is a climatologist. For years, the global warming alarmists have tried to pick away at Dr. Ball's credibility but he is a climatologist. I've seen the diploma. Anyone can go online and see the diploma. Anyway, he's got a brand new book out, and it's called The Deliberate Corruption of Climate Science. And uh, he's on the program next week, kind of coming off the back of my appearance on The Zoomer, Conrad Black and Denise Donlan's program. I was invited on as part of this roundtable debate about anthropogenic global warming. And uh, those who listen to the program or have heard me on the airwaves the past a dozen, 15 years, no, my position is quite clear. I do not believe, I do not subscribe to anthropogenic global warming. Anyway, so I invited onto this panel, along with people like uh, Elizabeth May and uh, David McNaughton and others. There were about eight of us around the table, and it was a lively discussion. And as I said earlier, Elizabeth May, a lovely lady, but we did not see eye to eye. So I'm having Dr. Timothy Ball on. We're not going to have a debate. And people say, well, why don't you bring someone on who believes in global warming. You know what, it, what, it, what this is? I call this equal time. I'm giving Dr. Ball a full hour on my program to talk about the deliberate corruption of climate science because it's equal time. Because for so long, I mean, he is basically shut out of the, uh, the mainstream media in this country. You will not hear Dr. Ball on a lot of programs, but he's coming on mine and he will, he will say his piece. And I, I believe a lot of what he has to say. Judith Curry, a lot of uh, very courageous women also talking about the global warming hoax. And uh, Judith Curry, who is the uh, chair of the School of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the uh, Georgia Institute of Technology, 30-year climate science veteran. And she was testifying before the U.S. Senate, who are reviewing the president's climate action plan and global warming theory. And uh, she basically taking on these global warming goliaths, and she stated boldly, that both the climate change problem and its solution have been vastly oversimplified. And she rebuts comments in presidential statements wherein President Obama suggested that extreme weather events are evidence of impending doom with substantial scientific documentation showing otherwise. Have you noticed now? I mean, we had snow in Cairo this uh, this past December for the first time in 100 years. 
We are in a global cooling trend. And now the global warming alarmists are blaming the cooling on global warming, if you can believe it. Anyway, Dr. Tim Ball on the program. And don't forget, as always, you can uh, check out everything you need to know about The Conspiracy Show at the website, richardserrett.com. Don't forget to subscribe and register. That's important. Say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. <laughs>